Specialty Story, session number 220. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their journey to their specialty, why they chose it, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, and so much more. We have a great guest today, Dr. Brian Gilmer, an orthopedic sports medicine physician who's been out of training now for seven years and is out in the community practicing. We have a great discussion about his journey to the sports medicine orthopedic world and what that may look like for you. We start the conversation by talking about how Dr. Gilmer first became interested in ortho sports medicine. Yeah, I uh, grew up in a hospital more or less at the University of Texas, Houston. Uh, my mom was an orthopedic nurse. Uh, she later went back to school, became a CRNA, had me in the operating room at a pretty young age, young enough that I remember sort of like getting woozy and passing out, uh, probably middle school or early high school. And, uh, she kept trying to get me interested in anesthesia. And I just kept wandering up to the other side of the drapes and, uh, saying, well, what are those guys doing? <laughs> and, uh, then I tried to do a whole bunch of other things and, uh, kind of kept options open and it just sort of kept coming back to it and kept coming back to it. So at, in lots of different forks in the road, I kind of, I guess, just kept turning left or kept turning right, whatever ended up here. Um, and then, you know, the field, you can think of it as narrowing and sometimes people say, well, it's sub, sub, sub specialty, but, but I actually think it's just broadening, uh, even though the deeper you get into your field, the more specific it gets. Um, and then finally, now I'm just driven by my patients and they end up, you know, who you see determines uh, what you do. Mm. And so that's, that's what shapes my practice today. Uh, you know, eight years into practice. I'm interested to hear the, uh, that kind of reverse psychology, the broadening aspect as you get narrower. Talk about what what you mean by that. Well, maybe I'll just kind of explain in more detail what happened. You know, I I had this early experience to medicine and then I tried to be an English major and uh, got about halfway through. And my mom said, you know, just just take your prerequisites for medical school. Promise me you'll do that. And then sure enough, uh, you know, junior, senior year, it was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to take the MCAT. And then that led to medical school, got into medical school, wanted to, every surgeon. The only thing I knew for sure is I wanted to be a surgeon. I think just by disposition, most surgeons kind of know that about themselves. And then I wanted to do every surgery rotation I was in. When I was in OB, I wanted to do OB. When I was in surgery, I wanted to do surgery. And uh, ultimately ended up in orthopedics just because I was in a medical fraternity and uh, some of the older uh, guys were were going into ortho and knew the ortho residents and kind of got drug in there. And then uh, in training, ended up wanted to be a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the end of orthopedic residency versus sports medicine and uh, ended up marrying a girl. And, uh, you know, she said, well, gosh, I'd sure like to live here rather than there. And that led to uh, ending up doing the sports medicine. And then I was in a ski town. Uh, so I ended up getting a job in a ski town and then I ended up specifically taking care of ski and snowboard athletes. 
Um, and now within that, I have a partner who does almost all shoulder surgery and I do almost exclusively knee surgery now. And that's kind of drifted in, but, uh, you know, I have a, a group of 20 friends that we stay in touch around the country and, and we, we kind of continue to drill down and ask these really broad philosophical questions about really specific anything in medicine, the deeper you go, the more you realize there is to know. Yeah. That's that's very interesting. So, what are the biggest myths or misconceptions uh, there are about sports med in the ortho world? Well, in orthopedics in general, the joke is always strong as an ox and half as smart. Yep. Uh, but I, I think that's definitely definitely changing. Even just in the ten years that I've been out of training, uh, luckily the fields starting to be a little more heterogeneous and look a little different. Uh, and then, you know, we, even within orthopedics, there's different, different kind of mentalities and approaches. Sports medicine surgeons are uh, restorative surgeons first, we're uh, activity preserving. And, and I think the biggest contrast is, you know, take a total joint surgeon, they maybe do four operations, right? Right total hip, left total hip, right total knee, left total knee. I mean, that, that itself is a big stereotype, but uh, sports medicine surgeons are, were, uh, a lot more comfortable with uncertainty and, you know, do we add this component of the soft tissue surgery? Do we add bony correction? Uh, you know, what are the patient's goals? What kind of athlete are they? If are they a ski and snowboard athlete? Are they a football athlete? Are they in season, out season? And um, all those things shape the decisions you're trying to help make for people. And you, you have, it's, it's definitely a little less cookbook, I think, than, than other fields. Now, maybe everybody would say that about their niche, but uh, it's certainly true about what we do. Yeah. Besides a, uh, I'll go against what you just said, but besides a, a, a super strong bench press, what, what traits do you think lead to someone being a good, uh, sports med duck? I gosh, I think you have to, um, I, I do think you do have to have at least some level of an orth orthopedic, uh, or rather a sports background. Um, you kind of have to understand how athletes, um, and, and granted, bearing in mind that everyone thinks they're an athlete, right? From yep. a four-year-old to a 97-year-old. Um, but they, they have their own distinct personalities. And, and you really got to be focused on what people's goals are. Because uh, you can take two people with the exact same problem and, and, and develop two different treatment plans just based on what they're after. Yeah. Um, so you got to be willing to listen to people. I mean, really listen um, to, to who they are, what they're after. Um, and, and then, like I said, you, you kind of got to be flexible and willing to change course, um, on the fly because, uh, sometimes the first thing doesn't work out and you need to kind of change direction. Yeah. Interesting. So the, um, the, the world of, of sports med, as you were going through that, the ortho world, were there any other specialties as you were going through med school that kind of pulled at your heartstrings? Yeah, I wanted to be a trauma surgeon and then uh, like a general surgeon, trauma surgeon. And then I realized um, that they didn't operate as much as I thought they did. And so I ended up doing this because um, it's uh, they're some of the busiest operative surgeons in the hospital, typically. Um, so trauma always appealed to me. Uh, but and I still do a lot of trauma, but it's not it's not high energy motor vehicle trauma. It's uh, sports trauma. So it's lower energy uh, stuff for the most part, like I said, was also interested in shoulder and elbow, which overlaps a lot with sports medicine, mm -hmm. uh, but has a, a larger reconstructive 
uh, piece to it. So you're doing arthroplasty, maybe as well as arthroscopic surgery, but you're only operating on the shoulder. Uh, sports medicine, you're all over the body, um, and it's predominantly arthroscopic, although a fair bit of open surgery too. Yeah. Uh, in terms of what a sports medicine trained orthopod does and treats and sees in, in terms of patients, what does that look like kind of generally speaking? So a lot of meniscus tears, a lot of ACL injuries, a lot of rotator cuff tears, a lot of stuff you don't really learn anything about uh, that's very poorly taught in medical school. But then you get out into the real world, and these are, are very common. Uh, musculoskeletal injuries are really common. And then, of course, fractures. Uh, people fall skiing, snowboarding, um, or uh, shoulder dislocations. Uh, that makes up the bulk of what we do. And then the other side is uh, a lot of stuff that overlaps with maybe family medicine trained sports physicians, uh, which are often treating like the overuse injuries associated with sports. Uh, so patellar tendonitis, uh, tennis elbow, uh, lateral epicondylitis, um, jumper's knee, these kinds of things uh, often treated with biologics, injections, PRP, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's some acute and then it's some, I would say subacute, but very little, uh, very little chronic, right? That's one of the appealing things about our job is for the most part, things kind of have a defined beginning, middle and end. And then you don't see the patient again until they have <laughs> their next injury. Okay. Goodbye. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but then you get these people who they're sort of like, oh, I wrecked my doc, I'm back. I wrecked my motorcycle again, or I fell climbing, or uh, I got back to totally skiing and I was, you know, shredding the gnar and I just <laughs> totally yard sailed it. And now something completely different hurts. Uh, I tore my other ACL, you know, yeah. when I got back to football next year. So, so you get this continuity, but they're all sort of discrete episodes of care. That's funny. That's, that's great. So talk about, um, Turf wars. One one of the things that it's interesting doing this podcast and talking to so many different subspecialties, uh, I, I hear more and more potential uh, turf wars and encroachment on specialists. Um, kind of what they do, what they see. So for you, as a surgeon, uh, potentially as a sports medicine uh, trained orthopod you mentioned meniscus and and uh shoulders and stuff like that where you need to go under the knife to to go and explore those things and repair and and uh fix but a lot of the things you mentioned some overuse stuff like steroid injections just uh physical therapy uh conservative therapy can be done and a lot of uh pm and r docs are seeing a lot of the same patients, a lot of the same diseases, pathologies, ailments that, that you're seeing. As a future primary care doc listening to this, how do they figure out where to send their patient to? Well, I, I mean, some of it is relatively straightforward, right? It's, it's the same thing that's true. You, you send the patient to somebody who's uh, giving your patients good care. So you build a relationship with somebody, whether it's a surgeon, PM&R guy. I don't have a lot of direct competition, and we're in a pretty remote rural town, uh, so I kind of end up doing everything. But my my uh, colleagues in big cities, um, there's not a lot of direct 
competition per se. So for example, in a lot of groups, there is a dedicated PM&R physician within the physician group of the orthopedic practice. Mm-hmm. Intentionally, they are to manage and triage those things too. So if it's if it's more of a chronic overuse injury, they actually intentionally end up there. If it's more of an acute injury, they end up sent there. And, and so some of it can be just sorted out with if you have a specific patient in front of you, what's their history? Did they fall, felt a pop, now the knee's massively swollen and can't bend. Maybe that needs to go through the surgeon first. Uh, Did they play 400 rounds of pickleball last weekend and now their elbow hurts really bad? Maybe that can start with a PM&R type approach and and do some biologics or or some PT first. Yeah. So what you're saying is a good history and physical can help. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, you still gotta still gotta do your job. <laughs> Darn it! Um, yeah. Awesome. So, what does a typical day or typical week look like for you? I kind of have a unique practice, and um, so I might be what sometimes gets referred to as privademic. I'm in a private practice, but I have a lot of academic interests that I'm still uh, free and able to pursue. So, uh, real quick, like my Monday today. As I drive down to our travel clinic, that's where I am right now. Uh, I see patients all day. Sometimes if I have an operation in the afternoon, I run back up 40 miles to our main hospital and take care of that. Sometimes I take call in the evenings. Um, and then Tuesday, I operate uh, pretty much all day. We actually start at 8 here and generally go till about 7 o'clock at night. And then we're sometimes on call for a traumatic injury. So that's usually, you know, 12, 14, 15-hour day. And then I get up and run a clinic on Wednesday. Um, and then Thursday and Friday, I actually just do a bunch of other stuff. I do some consulting. I do teaching. I do research. Uh, I do some telehealth on Thursday afternoon. Um, so I technically work three and a half days a week, uh, I would say in clinical practice and then about a day in other stuff. And then about half a day skiing or taking my kids to school. Yeah. That's uh, that's not a bad life. One of the things I love uh, about medicine and, and not a lot of students as they're going through this process, uh, understand this. It's one of the reasons why I have this podcast is students going through training typically see urban academic medicine. And that is not the majority of medicine that is practiced in this country. So you're the perfect example of someone who- Yeah, I think that's- You've gone out and created your own thing, uh, your own, however you want it, uh, the the practice of, of your dreams, so to speak. Look, anybody who tells you that medicine is a dead-end career is just not paying attention. Um, you can do or as much or as little of so many things. And it's the same concept I talked about in, uh, when we when we opened up here is uh, it can be as broad or as narrow as you want. Um, but but it's in it's absolutely in your hands. Uh, I dabble in uh, you can look at you can be a team physician if you want and cover sports teams. If you if you want to spend all your free time going to basketball games anyways, you may as well be on the sidelines, right? Uh, if, if you want to be a person who's involved in legal stuff or innovation, you can get involved in industry. You can become an expert witness. Uh, you can choose to teach. You can start a fellowship from a private practice. Uh, you can get affiliated with a medical school that's in your region. Um, there is no end to what the uh, options are. You can pursue medical writing. Uh, you know, there's a lot of places that uh, media outlets, podcasts, journals, editorials, um, it, it, it can be whatever you want if you take the time to develop true expertise. Yeah. 
And I think that's the key. You, st- you still got to spend the time. You still got to do the work. Um, but there's lots of ways to find work you love. Yeah. I'm just excited you said podcasts. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> I feel loved. Uh, what does call look like for you? Well, luckily, I live in a ski town where, um, you know, you can't get takeout after nine, nine o'clock. So I'm not up in the middle of the night very often. Uh, you know, if I'm at the hospital past 1am, there've been a couple of times where it snowed so much. I just spent the night at the hospital. Um, it's usually like a low energy fracture or two at the end of the day. So people start skiing at nine, they finish at four, they get hurt at three 30. Cause that's when everybody's tired. They end up in the ER at five. We're doing their case by six or seven. And I'm usually done with that by nine. Now, sometimes on the weekends, you know, we're just going all day and it, it looks like a war hospital, but that's not, that's not common. Yeah. Do you feel like you have enough time for life outside the hospital? Well, so this, this varies with time a little bit too, right? So when I started coming out, I took a hundred plus days a year, I want to say when I first started mm-hmm. and now I'm probably down to two or three weekends every few months, um, maybe four to six weekends over the course of a year. Um, so I've gradually whittled that, that call down. Right. But, but early on, um, I was doing a lot of it. Yeah. What does the training path look like to become a, a sports med orthodoc? Uh, four years medical school do well. I don't know how that's going to change as we move away from grades. Uh, I don't know what the new rubrics are going to look like. Maybe some of your listeners could teach me about that. I'm certainly interested in it as I'm a fellowship director now. Um, Then your five years orthopedic residency, three years as a junior resident, two years as a senior resident, rotating through the seven main, seven or eight main uh, orthopedic service lines, then a year of fellowship training generally in one of those fields. So tumor, hand, shoulder and elbow, sports medicine, adult reconstruction, which is just a fancy way of saying joint replacement, uh, trauma, and foot and ankle. Um, and then I did a year of that. And then um, and then you go into practice. So if you go straight through, I think you start practice you're 32 years old, assuming you are kind of on the standard track of 18, 22, 26, 31, 32, and then into practice. Yeah. 32 years young, as we like to say. <laughs> That's right. Still lots of life ahead of you. Um, what should students be doing as, as you're now program director of a fellowship? What should students be doing to, to stay competitive uh, through their training to, to match into a sports medicine fellowship? Uh, so there's an interesting shift I, I, I see going on right now. The interest is definitely swinging towards research. Uh, it's, it's, you know, swinging away from board scores uh, and grades. I think the clinical rotations are still, you know, critically important, but uh, I'm getting a lot more students first and second year saying, I need a research project. I need a research project. What do you have going on? I have a list of students, probably 15 long uh, with far more projects than I have for them. The thing that's going to happen is, you know, 20 years ago before my time is fellowship decisions and probably to a lesser extent residency decisions were just based on kind of word of mouth. Hey, is so-and-so a good guy or a good gal to have in our program? And then because they really wanted to get away from that, that's when we developed the match, uh, put a lot of emphasis on board scores and the pendulum then swung to, well, everybody just put, I got to get a, you know, 
280 on the boards. Um, I don't even think that's a real number, but you know, just <laughs> destroy the boards and, uh, and then that'll, you know, allow me to have, and if I don't have those kind of scores, uh, some of these fields are just not open to me. Yep. And the, the side effect of now taking the grades away and, and taking some of those objective measures away is that it, it's sort of as a program director, I think, well, what else do I have to go on? I guess I'm just going to call my friend who's the program director at their, their medical school or their residency and say, Hey, is this a good guy or a good gal? Because, because yeah. I don't, I don't really have anything objective to go on. So it'll be interesting to see how that, how that plays out in its, yeah. in its second go round. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, I, I love having this conversation with residency and, and fellowship program directors, uh, because, We've, we, I say we, uh, I, I have never been a residency or program director. Uh, we've been so accustomed to objective measurements through this journey. What is your, what is your OCHEM grade? What is your MCAT score? What is your step one score, step two score? Um, but the real world doesn't work like that, right? If I go take a job at, at Google tomorrow and I apply, there's no objective measurements. It's, it's a lot of like, oh, I spearheaded, blah, 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 blah. Um, and so the, the question I always come back to is, do we need objective measurements? Uh, and and I, I understand from a kind of a time management overwhelm standpoint, for you as a, a program director, objective measurements help. But, it's, but I, I wonder if we can hopefully find people who are going to be better slash happier uh, and ultimately better. Uh, better physicians for their patients by moving away from these objective measurements. I, I don't know. Well, let, let me tell you a story about a friend of mine who's uh, a program director at a, at a residency. I won't reveal the identity of, yeah. but he did something I thought was completely brilliant, right? He says, you know, I've had double the number of applications since some of these objective measures are dropping off. Yeah. So all I did is on the bottom of the webpage, there's a link and it says, Here's the supplemental app. If you're interested in all of this, mm -hmm. here's the supplemental application. Love it. And if people clicked on the website and at least were interested enough to read down through the website in the program and yeah. notice that there was, it didn't amount, it wasn't, you yep. know, written anywhere else. Yeah. But if, but it's a, it's a beautiful rationale. If you didn't read through the webpage all the way to the bottom, how interested are you really? Love it. Oh, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and it, like they're perverted um, reasons for a lot of things in this world. And, and you wonder like who's pulling the strings, quote unquote, at, at uh, um, the MBME to drop the board scores. Cause the people that really benefit from this, it's the double AMC with the heiress application <laughs> because students are basically just applying to every program out there. It's ridiculous. Um, and that's been a trend for the last couple of years, kind of pre board scores going away. Um, but it's, I, I love that. Um, when I put on, uh, when I'm looking for some, some help, uh, with projects or anything, I go to a specific website where there's some freelance workers and I will do something kind of tricky like that, that it's not like, here's the job description and randomly one sentence. I'll be like in your reply to me, like, tell me who won the Super Bowl last year. Just random. I don't, I don't put it as a separate paragraph. I just kind of hide it in there. And if, if they don't say it, I don't even look at the application. I don't care if they have uh, a million out of 10 stars. Um, I'm not looking at their application because they obviously didn't look at mine. 
right? And yeah. um, my my friend said he had about a forty percent reduction in his workload yeah. in the number of applicants that he was able to just take off the top. You bring up a really interesting point, and and it's it's a little twisted, and it's I'm going to have to really think about what you said there, but it, it's. You're right. There is a there is sort of a financial gain uh, that ends up in the hands of bureaucracy. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, but it'd be interesting to see if if maybe residencies move to a a secondary application process uh, because medical schools see that they'll see a huge uh, a huge bump in primary applications just because it's easy to click a box. Um, but when students actually get the secondary essays, they're like, uh, yeah, no, thanks. I'm not going to fill that out. So it's a way to whittle down applications. Just a practical advice to your, to your listeners. If you really want to go somewhere or you're really interested in something, uh, I think people are always like, who should I talk to? Or does so-and-so have a connection here? I mean, I think just having the courage and authenticity to draft up something that is clearly individual and personal and say, Hey, I'm really interested in your program. Mm -hmm. That's going to make it into my stack of papers. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Personal touch uh, goes a long way. Uh, All right. So speaking about objective measurements, uh, one of the biggest objective things that, that you can see on an application if, is if someone is an MD or a DO, for the osteopathic student or resident listening to this, what do they need to do to overcome any sort of negative bias out there? You know, it's really interesting you say this because I glanced at this the other day and uh, was looking at the residency list of a very prominent orthopedic residency program. Um, or I'm sorry, this was this must have been a fellowship. Um, but there was a there was a, a large number of DOs in the group. I think in orthopedics, uh, the distinction maybe isn't as big as it used to be. Um, I've had some great students uh, out of DO programs who we uh, kind of helped match into orthopedic residencies. Um, and granted, this one guy I'm thinking of, he was just hustling all the time. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I don't think it's sort of this... Um, big hurdle to climb anymore. I don't think people really view it that differently. I, I know I'm not when I, when I pick up an application, uh, for a fellow, I'm, yeah. I mean, maybe it's different elsewhere, but that's not how it is at our place. I mean, you yeah. go through orthopedic residency, you go through residency, everybody's kind of been through the same meat grinder. <laughs> um, it's funny. All I can think of, I don't, I don't know how old you are, but all I can think of is fire marshal bill talking about like, don't put your hand in the meat grinder. I am, uh, I am, I am that age. I was like <laughs> spot on. That's that reference is spot on for me and probably no one else who's listening right now. Yeah, that, that is awesome. And, and for ortho as well, that, that works perfectly. Um, what do you know now that you wish you knew before going into sports med ortho? Uh, that your job at the early stage of the game in medical school is to keep as many doors open as possible. All you can really do is make decisions that hurt yourself. And as long as you do everything right, you have lots of options and lots of options are good. Um, and I think generally just having a plan A and a plan B always at every level of training, um, have that main thing you're passionate about, but also the other thing that you're looking into because a lot of, it's a really complicated rubric, but the choices are often binary. Mm -hmm. And uh, you you keep making a series of yes, no decisions. 
um, and you'll end up in some little niche of your field in some little corner of the world. And, and that, that, that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, so you don't have to have it all mapped out. You don't have to have the master plan when you're 21 years old. I mean, I was a child uh, <laughs> making these decisions about about my life and it all kind of, it all kind of worked out. So you just make the decision that's in front of you and then keep your, your eyes and ears open and your options open by not making mistakes. And the rest, it's easy to say, hard to believe and have faith in, but the rest really will take care of itself. Yeah. You, you were mentioning, I think PRP earlier, one of the newer, though it's not super new, newer kind of trends in treatments and therapeutics. Are, are there any huge trends that you see coming in, in, in terms of devices or, or therapeutics that are going to change the game for, uh, for sportsmen? I think we're in a uh, kind of like the world of professional sports, right? The, the performance curve, if you're into baseball stoichiometrics or anything like that, the performance curve is crammed all the way to the right. So um, all of the small incremental gains have largely been been done uh, at this point. And the next sort of big paradigm shift is probably out there, but I don't think it's really clear what it is yet. Yeah. Uh, you know, true clinical applications of stem cell therapies, true regenerative matrix stuff. Uh, we, we have a long ways to go um, in those departments, but um, but the the pace is fast. Um, so I expect it to be different. I just need to eke out another 20 years or so. Um, and then it's, it's all up to you guys from there. <laughs> uh, awesome. Awesome. What do you like the most about your job? I have really nice patients. Um, I have motivated patients. I have patients who want to get better. I have patients who teach me things, uh, and who I learn from. And I have a great group of colleagues and friends who I can just sit around and sort of muse about broad philosophic problems that are, you know, framed in the guise of knee pathology. So <laughs> I, I, you know, if you can just, it, the, it's lifelong learning. It never ends. Uh, no one's ever right. Um, you know, it's like, it's like sports, there's always another season and, uh, it just, it's, and it's always exciting. <laughs> so is the meaning of life a medial meniscus or a lateral meniscus? Oh, I mean, I would take a medial <laughs> meniscus any day. It's well fixed. It's anchored. The lateral meniscus is sort of like its hippie cousin. You know, that's <laughs> way too much uh, to, weed at the beginning of life. Just hard to rein in. It's kind of slopping all over the place. It, it's loosey goosey. You don't know if it's if it's if it's just right or it's you know way out of bounds. Uh, yeah, now I'll take a I'll take a varus knee any day. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Um, what do you like the least about your specialty? Oh gosh. Um, it's, it's like worn out to say, but like everybody, we're just running up against the wall of, you know, insurance, not wanting to pay for things, administration of hospitals, just getting more difficult, uh, increasing challenges, uh, to just do your job and do what you want to do. But um, I, I feel like that's not a very creative thing to say, and I, I'm almost reluctant to say it. Um, I like everything about my job. It's it's the things around my job that sometimes are distractions. Yeah. Um, if you had to do it all over again, would you still be a orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist? 
I wake up every day thankful that I somehow force gumped my way into my job. Uh, that, you know, the series of circumstances, if it was up to me to map it out and to, to fade it off for myself, I think I would have done a lot worse than what ended up happening. Yeah. Any final words of wisdom for the student listening, thinking about ortho, but unsure of their ability or, or, uh, smarts to get there? Uh, well, when you're entering a field where, the rubric is strong as an ox and <laughs> half as smart. We're happy to take you if you keep putting up strong performances, stay dedicated, and show up. So, you know, you don't you don't have to be a genius to do what we do. You just have to care a lot. What about from a technical standpoint? A lot of people are concerned. Like I don't have the the manual dexterity or the the fine motor skills to be a surgeon. What does what does that look like in in terms of training? Uh, you know, I tell my fellows that I think there's kind of three levels. There's folks who you can be a good surgeon and you can decide where you kind of want to stop, right? So you're going to be trained to a standard. You're going to be able to do good work. And then I think uh, there are some people who should kind of stick to that. And hopefully in the world of, you know, non-grade, non-measured uh, outcomes that you have mentors and you have instructors and teachers that say, you know, like you're really sound, um, but but maybe like, you know, stick to these basics or you need more work before you really advance. And then you have other people who it's like, if you want to put in the work, I think you're capable of doing really difficult, complex, technical work, but you just need to really ask yourself if you're willing to put in the additional work to do those things. And you have the stomach for the complications that they bring. Um, and I don't think everyone should feel pushed that, you know, they need to be the world expert in medial meniscuses uh, or lateral meniscuses. Uh, I think there's a big role for saying um, you don't have to be necessarily technically gifted um, in a world where we have so many resources available for you to learn the skills. If you put in the reps and you do the work, uh, um, I'm yet to meet a student who can't trained to a level that I think they can conduct safe and effective surgery. Um, I will say that I don't know if certain operations um, are for everyone, but boy, is that, that's not something you need to sort out in medical school. All right. So there you have it again, Dr. Brian Gilmer, orthopedic sports medicine talking today about his journey there what he likes, what he doesn't like, and so much more. If you're looking for some more information about sports medicine and the orthopedic world, check out sportsmed.org. Again, that's sportsmed.org. That's the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.